Today's reading is from Genesis 37, 1-36. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields, and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver 
to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph to eat in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. When C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, was 58, he married his wife, Joy Davidman. And they spent the next four years happily married. But four years after their marriage, she died of cancer, and Lewis found himself single again. A year after the death of his wife, he wrote a very short book. I think it's like 37 pages long. It's called A Grief Observed. Maybe you've, you've read it. Maybe you're familiar with it. On page two of that book, he, he just, he, he writes these heart, heartbreaking words. Where is God? When you are happy, so happy you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon your life as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. After that, silence. I don't think Lewis is alone here. I think many people have found themselves in a situation when their need was desperate and when every other help was vain. Going to God only to find God deafeningly silent. Like Joseph. Like Joseph in our passage, the 17-year-old son, this, this, this son of Jacob, this brother who was trafficked into a life of slavery, at the moment where his need is greatest, where is God? He is deafeningly silent. In that moment, 
you hear Joseph crying out. We know he did because later in Genesis we're told he cried out. And yet, where is God? He is deafeningly silent. How do we understand this? How do we understand the, the very real suffering and pain in our lives, which has come to us through no fault of our own? I don't think there are easy answers. But having said that, I know this. We must not mistake the silence of God with his absence. We must not do that. God's deafening silence does not equal his absence. I I hope we see that this morning in our story because our passage is teaching us, and I hope we hear it, that even when God is deafeningly silent, he is always at work. He's working behind the scenes. He is working out his glorious plan and purpose of salvation. And I hope we see that this morning. I hope that's clear. We're going to look at that this morning, explore it under two headings. One, God's deafening silence in our pain. And two, his deafening silence in his saving purpose. First, God's deafening silence in our pain. So for the past two weeks, you may know that we've been looking at the life of Jacob. And Jacob has a son named Joseph. And the remainder of the book of Genesis is taken up, focuses on this man named Joseph. We are introduced to him in our passage this morning. He's out looking after, tending the flocks with his brothers. It seems ideal. It's picturesque. (laughs) It's glorious. And yet, we know that there is a growing tension In this family, it's signaled in verse 2 by this phrase, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Who are they? Here's who they are. Jacob married two women, Leah and Rachel. He did not want to marry Leah. He was tricked into marrying Leah. He wanted to marry Rachel, who he did marry, and this was the woman he loved. This was the love of his life. Rachel, though, struggled with infertility, couldn't get pregnant. And Leah actually struggled with infertility later on. And so they did what many women in that day did who could afford it. They took their maidservants and gave them to Jacob, to have children. And their names were, guess what? And so all of a sudden, right as we enter the story, just by dropping the names of these, of these, of these women, we know there's tension. Because Joseph was the son of Rachel, the favored wife. He is the favored son. Jacob loves this guy. He loves him so much. And the tension is growing and growing and growing. And then it says that Joseph brought back a bad report about these brothers. And that doesn't go well. And it says here in the passage that, that, that Jacob loved Joseph more than all of the other brothers. And they knew it. And then he made a 
coat or a, a tunic for him. And it's, it's not clear what kind of tunic it was. It's, some say it was multicolored, but there's no evidence in the Hebrew that that was the case. It suggested that it means a, a, a long-sleeved garment. Not the kind that a shepherd would wear, but a supervisor. I love the way the NIV has translated this. It's an ornate robe. And the point is that this was different. And no other brother got a robe like this. Joseph got it, and they hated him for it. They hated him for it. But it gets worse here. The tension escalates because Joseph has not one dream, but two dreams. And in the first dream, he sees stalks of grain, and one shoots up. And all the others bow down to this. And Joseph shares this dream with his brothers. And they know what it means. They know that he's saying that one day you will bow down and I will reign over you. And they hate him. The second dream sees the sun and the moon and 11 stars. He tells it to his father and to his brothers. And they know what this means. And Jacob says... Are you joking? Are you serious? You expect us to believe that one day me, your mother, and all of your brothers will bow down and serve you. Unheard of in that culture for the youngest to have that kind of power and authority. But he keeps it in mind. And then one day, one day, Jacob sends the boys out to go graze the sheep, sends them to Shechem, 50 miles up the road. And he tells his son Joseph to go check up on them and bring a report back. And so he goes. And he reaches Shechem, but they're not there. He's wandering around in a field, and and some person, some mystery person, sees him, and says, who are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. He says, well, I don't think they're here. I, I heard them say something like we're going up the road. And so he goes another 15 miles up the road in that tunic. And his brothers see him approaching. You can't miss him. And they conspire on the spot to kill him. They don't, because Reuben, the firstborn, says, let's not do this. Let's throw him into one of these cisterns. And the cistern in that day was a kind of bottle-shaped thing, probably 6 to 16 plus feet, and it would contain water, but there's no water in it right now. And they take him and they tear off that rope, and they throw him into that cistern, and then they sit down, and they have a meal. And just about that time, a band of Ishmaelites who are on their way to Egypt come by, and Judah, he's such a good man. Look at, let's not kill this guy, let's just, you know, sell him for money. After all, he's our brother. What a noble man. What a noble man. And they do. They sell 
him to the caravan who takes him down to Egypt where he is sold into Potiphar's house. And the question that I'd like to ask you this morning to think about with me is this. Who's to blame here? Who's to blame? Over the years, I have heard some very unflattering things said about Joseph. Very unflattering things. He was immature. He was a snitch. He was becoming evil. I actually heard someone this week call him a sociopath. (laughs) A sociopath. I think it's a bit harsh. I mean, I'm looking at the passage and I'm just, I'm wondering where we get this picture of, of Joseph. I think it's owing more to everyone's response to him than to what's actually there in the passage. I think, I think the bad report that he brings at the beginning, like I, I looked up that phrase in the Hebrew Old Testament, every single case it's used. And this is what I found. At times, it can definitely mean a slanderous report. It can. But sometimes, it can mean a true, but an unflattering report. And and where do we get the idea that Joseph took it upon himself to bring this report? If anything, the evidence would suggest that Jacob was in the habit of asking Joseph to check up on the brothers, to bring a report. And he knew that his boys were no good. He knew they were bad to the bone. And he was a businessman. And so he would send out his son. I just don't think, I just don't see Joseph volunteering this report to his father. And the jacket, the tunic. I just don't get the sense, I don't see him parading <laughs> this thing around. Where, where is that? Have you ever had to wear clothes that you didn't want to wear? Have your parents ever put something on you you didn't want to wear? What was he supposed to do when his father gave it to him? He wore it. He was a good son. He was an obedient son. He wore it. The dreams, not sure about Probably unwise. But what do you do when you have a dream from God? Not just one, but two. He probably thought, I have to communicate these things, maybe. And I don't think it was easy for him to walk the 50 miles to that spot, knowing that his brothers hated him. Knowing that he was going to be vulnerable. Knowing that his father was nowhere knowing that he could really be in some serious danger, but he goes, and not just to Shechem. He doesn't just follow his, the, the, the letter of the law of his father. He goes the extra distance all the way up until he finds them. Can you imagine this guy approaching his brothers and the terror that must have been in his heart, but he still does it. I just don't see the blame falling on Joseph. I don't actually see it falling on Jacob. I think Jacob was incredibly unwise. 
I think he had like major parent fail in so many ways. You know, I think he created a situation, an environment where like bad things could happen in his family, but he didn't pull the trigger. The blame, I believe, lies soundly and squarely with the brothers. And I think that's important. Because sometimes in this life, when we experience, well, the harshness of life and the harshness of other people, it's so easy to blame ourselves, isn't it? You know, when bad things happen to us, we just, we want to draw a straight line for some profound reason from that to my guilt. I must have been in the wrong You hear kids of parents who have broken up. It must have been me. Or you find yourself in a situation where it doesn't go well for you and you say, I I should have known better. I was was unwise. As though you're to blame. And I think it's so important and I think it's here that there comes a time when we have to say to the things that have come to us that we never asked for, that it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. Remember that movie, Goodwill Hunting? Just a famous, amazing, I don't know, back in the 90s it was made. Matt Damon plays Will Hunting and Robin Williams plays the um, psychologist and Matt Damon's character is just such a broken guy. He he was orphaned. He just went through one home after another, just experienced terrible abuse. And there's that moment in the movie, it's the climax of the movie, where Robin Williams is talking to Matt Damon and he says, it's not your fault. And Will Hunting kind of dismisses him, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, no, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And the penny drops, and the man breaks, and for the first time, he gets it. It's not your fault. The thing that was done should never have been done. And In that moment of desperation, when God seems silent, you need to know he was both enraged and heartbroken. And he wasn't okay with it. And he doesn't expect you to just get over it. It is an opportunity, I think, to exercise courageous faith. In a moment when God seems so distant, in a moment where he didn't seem present, to turn to him courageously, if not heroically, and ask the hard questions, where were you? Where were you when I needed you most? I think our passage this morning invites that kind of question, invites that kind of honesty, demands it, I would say. What do you do in these moments when God is so 
deafeningly silent in our pain. When you're at the bottom of the cistern, and God could but doesn't deliver you on the spot, and where is he? It is an opportunity to go to your God and ask the toughest questions of your life. I don't think we can stop there, though, because I don't think the passage allows us to stop there because it doesn't tell us that evil is the final word, is the final verdict. And we see that so clearly in Joseph's life, don't we? I mean, even though, even though God is deafeningly silent, even though he has no, vo- even though Joseph has no voice in this passage, and even though he hears no voice from God, you do see God at work the entire way through the story, don't you? If we look, he's there. I mean, God has said to the patriarchs, to all of them, listen, you're going to go down into Egypt for, you know, a long time, and then afterwards I will bring you back to this land, and one day uh, you'll have many descendants, and one will come who will be the Savior, the Messiah of the world. And God had been saying this. And now, hear this. He allows Jacob and all of his parent fails. He, he allows these brothers, these broken, mean brothers, to mistreat Joseph. He allows Joseph to have these dreams and to communicate those dreams. He sends the brothers down to Shechem. He sends Joseph there. He se- and then this guy shows up. Where did that guy come from? He just happens to see him walking in the fields. And then when he meets his brothers, he just, there happens to be a cistern right there to be thrown into. And there just happens to be a band, a caravan of Ishmaelites that are coming by on their way to Egypt that will take him all the way to Egypt. Do you know what happens in Egypt? Spoiler alert. No, that's next week. Come back. It's good. It gets so good. It's hard, but it's great. The things that God is going to do down there in Egypt is going to save him, his whole family, all those brothers, the entire people of God, the entire world. But it comes through evil. God allows real evil into this man's life. And it turns out that evil and God's saving purposes are not incompatible. That God, in his wisdom and sovereignty, chooses often to work through the evil to accomplish his saving purposes. And that's true in this story. It's true in the redemptive story. It's true of a father who would send his son on a solo mission to brothers who would reject him and say, we don't want that kind of Messiah. 
and whose robe would be covered not in the blood of an animal, but in his own blood. And who, like Joseph, would cry out in that moment of need and desperation and where heaven would be deafeningly silent because God had to be. Because on that cross, Christ was bearing your sin. And on that cross, God was turning away from his father, his son. It was a real abandonment. Ours is not. It seems that way, but it is not. It cannot be because Christ was abandoned for you. And on that cross, the father was silent. That is the story of redemption. Some of you this morning are here and you're skeptical. One of the great objections to the Christian faith is this. If God is so good, why does he allow bad things to happen? And I'm not saying that's not a good question. But what I hope you see this morning is that God, in his absolute almightiness and love, chooses not to avoid, but to work through the terrible suffering in this world to bring about his saving purposes in people's lives. That is the story of the gospel. Hmm. And it's your story. And it's my story. It is. The things that come to us, the things that have come to us, the things that we never asked for, all the terrible things that have come, he allowed. But that evil does not get the final say. It does not and will not be the verdict on your life. God, the whole way through, friend, has been working. Working behind the scenes. Working in saving ways. I kind of get Joseph. My own story is one of abuse. My own story is one of childhood and adolescent abuse. If you can put an adjective in front of the word abuse, that's my story. I mean any adjective. And I've had to figure out where is God. And I've gone to him when heaven was silent. And I have found that over the years he has at times invited me to work things out. A few months ago he just said, Kieran, it's time. Let's go. It was an invitation into things I had never dealt with. For decades. This is what I know. This is what I believe. He was always there. He hated every evil. And he hates every evil that you've experienced. I believe this, that he 
was and is and will continue to work through that and work his saving purposes. I believe that. It took me decades. I think God is patient. I think he's not in a hurry. I think he wants to bring healing. But it's going to take time, and that's okay. He knows what he's doing. But maybe if I could just give you one thing to hold on to, just a handle of sorts in this moment, it would be this. This is a moment to wait. It's a moment to wait on God. It's a moment where maybe you find yourself at the bottom of that cistern and heaven is quiet. It's, a, it's an opportunity to wait. And you must know that he's listening. You must know that he is with you in that cistern and was there in that cistern. And you must know that he has a healing that he wants to work in your heart. And not only in your heart, but through your heart into this world. Because he is good. Because he has come and will come. Because he is here and he always has been and always will. Because he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so in that moment, when he seems to be, or seems to be silent, may I encourage you to choose to believe. May I encourage you in this moment to wait and to wait for him because he will come. Because he has come. Because he's coming. Amen. God, it is just so good to sit and listen to your word and to see not just brokenness, Father, but to see you working silently but powerfully, quietly, but savingly. And we thank you that you are this God and that you have broken into the world and you have shown us to be that God. I pray this morning that we would all, that we would all of us see you and see you through Christ to be that God and to wait even though we live through this veil of tears, but to believe, to choose to believe that your silence does not mean your absence and that you are here. That will require grace, Father, and we are all of us in need of grace. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his life, that solo mission to come and save us. 
redeem our lives. We just adore you and we magnify your sovereign, your sovereign grace this morning in Jesus name. Amen.